Severe weather is sweeping its way across the East Coast with heavy rains prompting a flood watch across most of Massachusetts. It's Tuesday, August 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden will be visiting the Grand Canyon today to tout new climate policies and designate nearly a million acres of land as a new national monument. Also, voters in Ohio will decide whether to make it more difficult to add new amendments to the state constitution. And the sour Florida is losing tourism over controversial policies passed by the state legislature. We're not seeing the demand or the trend that we had hoped we would be seeing, and we believe that it is in part due to things that are are happening at the state level. In sports, Red Sox win, rain and thunderstorms in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden will designate a new national monument in Arizona today to protect nearly a million acres just outside the Grand Canyon. Tribes and environmentalists have been trying to safeguard the land for decades. White House climate advisor Ali Zaidi says the designation means the land will be protected from future uranium mining. It's focused on preserving the historical resources uh, in this 970 917,000 acres, uh, making sure that we're doing everything that we can um, on a coordinated basis in a co-management approach uh, to lift up uh, those uh, historical resources, the ecosystem resources. Biden is in Arizona today, part of a multi-day swing through western states to promote his policies. Ohio voters will decide today whether to make it harder to change the state constitution. The measure would raise the voter approval threshold to 60 percent and increase the signature requirement that groups must meet to get amendments before the voters. Karen Kassler from Ohio Public Radio and Television reports. This is the only issue on the ballot put there by Republican state lawmakers ahead of a November vote on an amendment to guarantee access to abortion. Nearly 700,000 Ohioans have voted early, more than twice the early voters in last year's contested primaries for U.S. Senate and governor in May. Ramon Jones of Columbus was one of them. This is democracy at work. If the issue passes by a simple majority, future amendments would have to pass by 60 percent. And groups would have to gather valid signatures from all 88 counties to put amendments onto the ballot. Current law requires 44. For NPR News, I'm Karen Kassler in Columbus. Simon & Schuster has been sold to a private equity firm for $1.6 billion. This comes nearly a year after the government blocked the sale of the publisher to Penguin Random House. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more on the story. The nearly 100-year-old Simon & Schuster is home to renowned authors like Stephen King, Mary Higgins Clark, and Charles Schultz. Paramount Global, its parent company, sold the publisher to private investment firm KKR. The company says Simon & Schuster will become a standalone private company and that its leadership at the very top will stay the same. Paramount Global said the sale will help the entertainment company pay down debt. Over the decades, the big publishing giants have swallowed up smaller imprints, Last year, the Department of Justice blocked Penguin Random House from buying Simon & Schuster, saying it would be bad for competition, author compensation, diversity, and readers. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healey may declare a state of emergency over the record number of homeless families in the state-run shelter system. The Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless says more than 5,000 families are housed in the system today. The coalition expects that number to grow in the coming weeks and months. Governor Healey is expected to make an announcement regarding the issue later this morning. Boston City Council President wants to declare a public health emergency for the area known as Mass and Cass. Ed Flynn visited the encampment at the intersection of Melnia Cass Boulevard and Massachusetts Avenue yesterday. He tells the Boston Herald the conditions are worse than he thought. Flynn promised to visit the area while serving as acting mayor this week. New rules regulating the state's pork industry will go into effect later this month. They require pigs be given a certain amount of living space. That's after a restaurant trade group and the state attorney general's office reached an agreement. Alden Bourne reports. Massachusetts voters passed the restrictions almost seven years ago. They require farmers give pigs at least enough room to turn around. And they apply to pork produced outside the state but sold within. The law was put on hold after it was challenged in court. The plaintiffs, which include the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and the National Pork Producers Council, have agreed with Attorney General Andrea Campbell that the key parts of the law can go into effect on August 24th. One section is still up in the air. A requirement that pork that passes through Massachusetts but is sold beyond it also comply with the rules. The state is in the process of amending that portion of the regulations to try and resolve legal issues. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. T officials say ridership is up on some bus routes because of the Sumner Tunnel closure. They're encouraging people to keep taking the bus and other modes of public transit even after the tunnel reopens. MassDOT officials tell the Boston Globe work is more than halfway done on the tunnel. They say it's expected to reopen on schedule at the end of the month. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. The Red Sox ended last night with a bang. Pablo Reyes ended the team's first game against Kansas City with a walk-off grand slam. That earned the Sox a 6-2 win against the Royals. The teams will play at Fenway again tonight at 7. A flood watch is in effect throughout most of Massachusetts until midnight tonight as storms could bring as much as two inches of rain to the Boston area. We'll have highs in the low 80s today. Tonight, the showers and thunderstorms continue and temperatures cool down to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunny and breezy with highs in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. An old song proclaims the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, but some people think Donald Trump's conspiracy trial should be. Coming up, we hear the case for cameras in the federal courtroom for a former president. We begin with the current president, who's visiting the Grand Canyon today. 
But he's not hiking. The president is there to announce a new national monument. It's all part of a trip this week promoting the administration's environmental policies. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith is traveling with the president. She's on the line from Arizona. Tam, good morning. Good morning. What is the significance of this national monument, which we should mention comes after some others the president announced in recent years? Yeah, this new monument, it's all on federal land, nearly a million acres in three different sections around the Grand Canyon. And this land has a lot of meaning to Native American communities. According to the White House, the monument contains more than 3,000 known cultural and historic sites, including a dozen listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Hunting and fishing and existing livestock grazing permits will continue, but this designation prioritizes the cultural and spiritual uses of the land. And notably, this will also prevent future uranium development. So new permits Hmm. have been frozen for more than a decade, but this will make it permanent. It's something that tribal leaders in the area have been calling on for years. U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American secretary, discussed the significance with reporters on a call yesterday. These special places are not a pass-through on the way to the Grand Canyon. They are sacred and significant unto their own right. They should not be open to new mining claims and developed beyond recognition. And she visited the area in May and said it was one of the most meaningful trips of her life. Uh, Tam, uh, Sarah said a moment ago this is part of a trip promoting environmental policies. Is there something more to this trip than the monument? So when we asked about this, a Biden administration official tied this trip, at least in part, to the extreme heat that the Southwest has been experiencing this summer. It also comes on the one-year anniversary of this big climate and health care bill that was passed under the name the Inflation Reduction Act. So today, Biden will also be announcing $44 million in funding to boost climate resilience in national parks all over the country. More broadly, in the first two years he was in office, he worked with Congress, sometimes it was bipartisan, sometimes it was just Democrats, to pass a bunch of bills, big bills. Now they're in the implementation phase. And the theory of the case here is that through legislation and executive action, Biden's policies are able to get at some of the drivers of climate change and also create new jobs. So this trip is basically a big billboard advertising what was passed, what they're working on, in hopes of getting some credit, uh, which the public has not yet been really willing to give the president. He's also visiting a state we should note that until very recently was considered a red state. It did go for him narrowly in 2020, but he has to be thinking about 2024. Right. And and this monument designation is broadly popular here in Arizona, though some ranchers in the uranium mining industry are raising flags. But this is the sort of headline grabbing local story that the president and his campaign need more than a year out from the election. There's a lot of focus in national politics on former President Trump and the Republican primary. But this allows the president to go to places that will matter and get those local headlines. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks so much. You're welcome. Safe travels. This past weekend, the Mendenhall Glacier near Juneau, Alaska, released a flash flood on a river that cuts through a densely populated part of town. At least two homes collapsed into the river, and dozens of people have been displaced. As Anna Canny with member station KTOO reports, this kind of flooding is a growing issue around the world as glaciers recede due to climate change. 
On Sunday, John and Christine Lovering stood a few feet away from what used to be their backyard on the bank of the Mendenhall River. The water was still far above its usual level. It's about two and a half times wider than it's ever been that I've seen. The night before, the river rose nine feet in a matter of hours, with water that had been released from the Mendenhall Glacier. The Loverings had to evacuate and are now staying with friends. I called her and said, what, what stuff should I grab? Well, and he's normally like calm, cool, collected John, and he was <laughs> sounding a little bit panicked, so I, I knew that things were happening fast. So. The water eroded the bank where the Lovering's condo building stood. One corner now hangs off a steep drop-off. It's been condemned along with a handful of other homes in Juneau. More have been damaged by standing water. Flooding from the Mendenhall Glacier has been happening every year since 2011, according to hydrologist Aaron Hood with the University of Southeast Alaska. But this year was the first year that flooding significantly damaged homes because the speed of the water was so much faster. So roughly 50% higher than what we've ever seen. And this record goes back to the 1960s. This type of flooding isn't exclusive to the Mendenhall Glacier. Hood says that even worse events have happened in Iceland, the Andes, and the Himalayas. A recent study estimated that 15 million people globally are threatened by these glacial outburst floods. The risks of them are increasing as human-caused climate change drives temperatures higher. As glaciers recede, they can leave behind a depression that can fill with rain or meltwater from the glacier. Those might be dammed by rock or ice, but if that dam suddenly gives way... This results in the really catastrophic floods that can cause, you know, just like a dam failure or a huge wall of water to move downstream. The dam that holds back water at the Mendenhall Glacier is made of ice. Hood theorizes that the cracks in the ice dam must have grown larger than usual in order for so much water to be released at once. On Monday, Juneau City Council voted to declare a local emergency. They plan to request aid from the state and federal level. For NPR News, I'm Anna Canny in Juneau. Now, within a few weeks, we expect to learn the start date for a trial for former President Donald Trump on charges related to his efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat. Under current rules, that trial would not be televised. Stephen Brill argues those rules should change. He founded Court TV and is now co-CEO of NewsGuard. And Leila Fadel asked him why he wants cameras in the courtroom this time. I think what we've seen for the last X number of years is that people are not debating from the same set of facts. One of the reasons I wrote this is I've been just sort of living in the world of online media through what I do at NewsGuard. Everything's an opinion. Nothing's a fact. Nobody mm. believes anything. What you see online, you have no idea how credible it is, who the source is, who's paying them to say something. The total opposite of what happens in a courtroom, where all the evidence is vetted, Lawyers are bound by standards of conduct where they can't just voice their opinions, they can't introduce hearsay or rumors. That's what the world needs to see in this trial because we're going to be debating this trial forever. There was a bipartisan January 6th committee and hours and hours of testimony aired on primetime television. Well, first um, of all, it, it was bipartisan in name only. There were no Trump defenders. Now, I'm not uh, criticizing the work of the committee. That's just a fact. And second, people don't watch hearings the way they will watch a trial. Mm. The whole reason that Court TV succeeded was because trials are so dramatic. They are riveting. You want to know what's going to happen next, especially if it's live. 
And the difference that this will make will be um, enormous. People will actually see what the jurors saw, not the lawyer's spin, not the prosecutor's indictment, but the evidence that is actually admitted into court that the jury decides. I think any part of the media would always argue for more openness, but no federal criminal trial is ever fully aired. Does this go against the traditions of of trial? That's not a tradition. That's just a law. Mm-hmm. But trials as a general matter, you know, constitutionally, were always meant to be public. In any small town um, or city in the 1800s, the courthouse was at the center of town, and it had a giant audience gallery because people were meant to come from all over town and watch the trial of the day. This is the best possible substitute for that. And if this were to be aired live, what does that mean for the country? I think they get to see the most important governmental function likely to be carried out in their lifetimes, other than if the government goes to war. Any other way that this trial goes, if it happens, if it's not aired in full, will never be accepted by Americans, in your opinion? Well, I think it'll be accepted by a majority of the country. But what we've seen is that in so many different ways, you know, a, a minority of the country can upset the rule of law and upset basic democracy. And if it's aired, though, you think that minority of people will say, okay, we watched it on TV, and now we believe it? I mean, not all of them. You know, there's still people who think that the Bush administration created 9-11, but it'll be fewer. I mean, my experience, as I wrote in the op-ed piece, is that when jurors sit through the whole trial, they have much more confidence in the legal system. Is there a risk of it becoming a spectacle? It's definitely going to be a spectacle. There's <laughs> no, you know, you don't make it less of a spectacle by not letting people see what's actually happening. That just creates all this you know, speculation about what's actually happening. Or do you make it more of a spectacle by opening it up? No, I think you you tone it down, you tamp it down. If the trial were televised, the judge would have a much easier time directing the lawyers not to talk about the case. The judge could say, you know, you get to do all your talking in court and the whole world is seeing what you're saying. So when you get outside court on the courthouse steps, just shut up. Stephen Brill is the founder of Court TV. His new op-ed in the New York Times is called Americans Will Believe the Trump Verdict Only If They Can See It. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, police have closed off roads around a courthouse in Atlanta as a grand jury there is expected to indict former President Donald Trump for attempting to subvert the 2020 election. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Excessive heat can be dangerous, especially for people who are older or have certain chronic illnesses or who work outside. Heat is the leading 
cause of death from natural hazards in the United States. And it is set to be an increasing problem. One program is trying to address this by emailing heat alerts to doctors and nurses so they can advise their most vulnerable patients. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today, and we do have a flood watch in effect. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s. Tonight, those fall to the 60s, and the storms continue mainly before about 8 p.m. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Electro-pop singer FC will headline our final Sound On Music Festival of the summer. It's happening at City Space on Thursday, August 24th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash vets. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. From EBSCO, with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. How do you feel about being less than perfect? Well, Thomas Curran, who teaches psychology at the London School of Economics, thinks of perfectionism as today's hidden epidemic. I'm a recovering perfectionist myself, and I think I'll always hold on to a little bit of perfectionism. Curran writes about his own battles with perfectionism in his new book, The Perfection Trap. He told me that the book took him much longer to write than he'd expected because he obsessed over every word. Perfectionism is really about deficit, about lack, about a sense that we're not good enough, that we're not perfect enough. And deep down, we feel those inadequacies, those flaws as very personal. They're things that we need to conceal and hide from everyone. And that's a very different starting point to the one I think a lot of people think perfectionism is this idea, you know, this kind of active, optimistic sense of trying to do excellent things and be an incredible achiever. When you view it through the lens of deficit, then you can really begin to break down some of its more negative tendencies and how it impacts on our lives and performances. And something you write about a lot in this book is your own sense of that deficit. Tell us more about how you grew up. How has your background shaped the way that you think about perfectionism? So I grew up in a small town in the United Kingdom, working class background, and we didn't have a great deal. And that was something I think from a very young age stayed with me i know it sounds stupid but when everyone around you has phones and the best trainers and the trendiest clothes and all the designer labels and all the rest of it it's just stuff right but as a young person if you don't have that stuff it it really matters and so 
I think from a very young age, I, I learned the shame of consumer culture that, you know, if you don't have the right items, that there's something wrong with you. There's something embarrassing about that life. And that really carried through me. And I definitely feel like I was overcompensating for that upbringing all the way through my young adult years, where I was constantly trying to lift myself above other people, trying as hard as I can not to let that background define me and try to, I guess, elevate myself out of that. And of course, that meant a lot of pressure. You know, as I hear you talk about competing to have the right clothes or the right shoes, and and as I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about economic inequality. And I wonder, when people don't have their basic needs met or struggle to meet their basic needs, how does the idea of perfectionism overlay with those concerns? I mean, does it exacerbate inequality or is there a point at which, you know, perfectionism is kind of an irrelevant consideration if you're just trying to get by? Well, if we look at what's happening right now, inequality is spiraling out of control. It's really hard for young people in that context because, you know, if you go back to the 40s, 50s and 60s, you had the affluent society, the burgeoning middle class, you know, the average family was celebrated you know, look at the Flintstones, look at the Jetsons. These were just average families, one income earner with a house and a car in the suburbs. Those days where we celebrated the average family just don't exist anymore. What we have right now is a very narrow and selective set of professions that gain access into the 1%. And everybody outside of those professions, I'm thinking here, tech, medicine, law, finance, are really finding it hard. Their wages aren't growing with inflation. Uh, Living standards are deteriorating. And by the way, they're still being told that they should be easily able to attain the same standard of life that their parents had. And then meeting the world and finding that that's incredibly tough. They're seeing that, they're feeling it, they're experiencing it, and they're internalizing it as a need and a pressure to be perfect. What does your research tell you about the role of perfectionism and, you know, whether or not it actually helps us or is there a point at which it it hinders us and actually is counterproductive? So when you actually look at the data, this idea that perfectionism is important to success simply isn't borne out. And the reason for this is twofold. One is because perfectionists do work hard, but they work unsustainably hard. The second reason perfectionists struggle to succeed is more interesting And that's because they're world-class self-sabotages. And I'll give you an example from a study that we conducted a few years ago. We brought people into our lab and we told them to complete a certain distance in a certain amount of time on a bike. And on the first attempt, all of these young people worked extremely hard to try and meet this goal. And then at the end, we told them that you failed, no matter how well they did, you didn't meet that goal. And then we asked them to do it again. And something really interesting happened. People who weren't particularly perfectionistic didn't really change their effort on the second attempt. If anything, put in a little bit more effort. But the highly perfectionistic people did the opposite. Their effort fell off a cliff. Because what they were doing is they were trying to preserve their sense of self-esteem by withdrawing themselves from the activity, knowing that the anticipated guilt, shame, and embarrassment of that initial failure was so fierce that they simply didn't want to experience it again. And in their minds, you can't fail at something you didn't try. And you see this in all sorts of self-sabotaging behaviors, not just complete withdrawal, but also things like procrastination and avoidance, Mm. where perfectionists are pulling themselves away from doing these really difficult tasks because they're managing essentially their anxiety of falling short. 
what are the things we can do in our own lives? There's a number of different things, but one of the things I've focused on in the book is self-acceptance. And I think this is really important for us to recognize that we are imperfect human beings, we're exhaustible creatures, and, and we're often going to encounter setbacks. We're going to find that there's times in our lives where we're vulnerable. Things are going to happen to us that are completely out of our control, and that's okay. It's about understanding and recognizing that the world is unpredictable and that existing as an imperfect human being inside that world, it's okay to fail. It's okay to show vulnerability. It's okay to push ourselves out into the world, knowing that it might not always go to plan and that we might not reach our goals in the time frame we expected, but that's okay. Thomas Curran is the author of The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we learn about a worldwide effort to restore oyster reefs, including a project in Alabama that aims to toughen up baby oysters so they're not as vulnerable to predators. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. In Minnesota, a former police officer in Minneapolis has been sentenced to nearly five years in prison for his role in the killing of George Floyd. Tutau was convicted of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter for holding back bystanders as then-fellow officer Derek Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. At sentencing, Tau maintained his innocence and said his conscience is clear. Judge Peter Cahill responded. After three years of reflection, I was hoping for a little more remorse, regret, acknowledgement of some responsibility. President Biden plans to designate a new national monument today when he visits the Grand Canyon in Arizona. NPR's Tamara Keith says the idea of the monument has long been supported by Native American groups. This new monument, it's all on federal land, nearly a million acres in three different sections around the Grand Canyon. And this land has a lot of meaning to Native American communities. According to the White House, the monument contains more than 3,000 known cultural and historic sites, including a dozen listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The president will also visit New Mexico and Utah this week as part of his three-state trip to the western U.S. This is NPR News.
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. An extremist group is facing a lawsuit for an attack on a black man in Boston last summer. Human Rights First says it is suing the white supremacist group Patriot Front and its leader, Thomas Rousseau. Last July, the group marched without a permit on Boston's Freedom Trail when they came upon the man and attacked him. The civil federal suit claims the group violated the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act and other laws. 30 people are without a home this morning after a large fire damaged several multifamily homes in Dorchester yesterday. Three firefighters were injured while responding to the scene on Irma Street. One sustained severe burns. Officials say the fire's cause remains under investigation. Many people are sharing memories of Harvard Law professor Charles Ogletree, who died last week at age 70. Among them is Professor Anita Hill. WBR's Lainey Ruxtell reports. Anita Hill first met Ogletree when they were both young law professors. Later, Ogletree represented Hill during Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings, when Hill accused Thomas of sexual harassment. Hill says Ogletree's work remains crucial as civil rights face new threats. We need to learn from Charles that we really need to think very broadly about the way that the law is remarginalizing people whose rights have been protected for decades now. Hill says she hopes Ogletree's students and mentees will help carry that torch. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra, on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. The Red Sox ended their four-game losing streak in dramatic fashion last night. Pablo Reyes hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth inning that clinched a 6-2 win over Kansas City for the Sox. The teams will play at Fenway again tonight. Low 80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers and thunderstorms at any point. We may get up to two inches of rain and there is a flood watch in effect. The stormy weather continues tonight as temperatures dip into the 60s. We dry up tomorrow for a sunny day in the mid-80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm A. Martinez. The Fulton County Courthouse in downtown Atlanta is circled by orange security barriers this week, and that's because any day now, a Georgia grand jury is expected to weigh criminal charges against former President Trump and his allies for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt described to me how law enforcement is preparing. We've created a force multiplier. We have gotten more boots on the ground. So we've learned from both New York and Miami an opportunity for us to do better. Any indictments in Georgia would come days after Trump pleaded not guilty in federal court in a similar probe. Following all this is WABE's Sam Greenglass. Sam, so what's happening at the courthouse this week? 
Well, normally the main street outside Fulton County's courthouse is this busy thoroughfare bustling with government workers and just regular people arriving for their day in court. But starting this week, that road is closed to traffic. Many staff are working from home. And as all the security ramps up, we've also learned that some witnesses have been told to be on call starting this week to testify for the grand jury. And the district attorney's office says they are ready to go. Okay, now Trump has already been indicted on federal charges for his efforts to try to overturn the election. And Georgia featured heavily in that indictment. Uh, How would a state case be different? Georgia is mentioned 48 times in the federal indictment, which details Trump's efforts to cajole state officials into helping him. But while Trump is the lone defendant so far in that federal case, we know prosecutors in Georgia have sent target letters to people like lawyer Rudy Giuliani and Georgia's fraudulent electors. I was with Fulton County District Attorney Fawnie Willis just before Trump was arraigned last week. And here's what she said she would say to critics who think a Georgia indictment is duplicative. That I took an oath and that the oath requires that I follow the law, that if someone broke the law in Fulton County, Georgia, that I have a duty to prosecute. And that's exactly what I plan to do. It's possible a state case could be a little more insulated from a hypothetical second term President Trump than the federal probe would be. Trump has called both of these investigations politically motivated witch hunts. So what if more than one person is charged in Georgia? Would that happen all at once, all at the same time? Yeah. And the reason is that D.A. Willis has an affinity for RICO or racketeering cases. They require a group of people committing multiple specific crimes in the pursuit of a common goal. Georgia has its own RICO law, which is pretty broad. Emory Law Professor Morgan Cloud told me that RICO allows prosecutors to weave a clear narrative from a complicated web of people and activities. This particular Georgia case really fits beautifully with the entire structural concept of RICO. But Cloud says RICO cases can also be challenging because there are just so many moving parts. So those are legal considerations. Obviously, though, this is also a a big political story. So what are you hearing from people in Georgia? Well, the Republican state officials here who rebuffed Trump's efforts have mostly kept quiet, but the state GOP has already launched a website to defend some of the people who might show up in these indictments. Now, talk to Democratic voters, of course. It's a different story. Still, I've heard from several people who doubt anyone will actually be held accountable. But before all of that, Georgia and the country have to wait for word from 23 grand jurors in Fulton County. That's W-A-B-E, Sam Greenglass. Sam, thanks. Thanks, A. Florida's warm weather and ocean breezes attract tens of millions of tourists each year. But for some business visitors, the Sunshine State's politics are casting a little too much shade. From member station WLRN, Tom Hudson reports. You couldn't have picked a more perfect venue in terms of sort of setting the tone for the whole weekend. This is a woman speaking on a promotional video about last year's Beauty and the Beach Girlfriends Weekend Conference held at a South Florida beachfront resort. It was organized by a Georgia-based nonprofit. It was just a perfect place to be for relaxation and for fellowship. But this group is not coming back to Florida this year. It's one of a handful of conferences, conventions, and trade shows that have decided not to bring their business to South Florida, blaming recent laws passed in the state. 
tourism has always transcended politics. Stacy Ritter is the CEO of Visit Lauderdale, the tourism marketing agency for Broward County. She says the area has lost $20 million over the next three years from events choosing not to come to Florida. Some groups point to public education policies. Others mention travel advisories issued by LGBTQ, immigration, and Black and Hispanic civil rights organizations. We don't talk politics and travel. We just want people to have great experiences and bring home wonderful memories. So this is a new conversation for us, and it's an uncomfortable one. Ritter's office maintains a spreadsheet of lost business when a prospective client decides against coming to Florida because of new laws. They are opposed to the state policies, whether it's the don't say gay bill or or the abortion restrictions or book banning or <laughs> the list goes on. So far, the lost sales are a drop in the bucket of the state's $100 billion plus travel business. Yet it has the attention of some in the industry. Peter Ritchie is the director of the Hospitality and Tourism Management Program at Florida Atlantic University. If you're considering a convention and you have a thousand attendees and you hear some noise among a group in the attendees, you'll just say, hey, let's not touch Florida for now. One of the latest groups to steer clear of gathering in Florida is Alpha Phi Alpha, the oldest African-American fraternity. Its 2025 convention had been scheduled to be in Orlando. The decision to move the event out of Florida came after the state approved new African-American history standards, including the controversial middle school benchmark that reads, quote, instruction includes how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Politics presents the latest challenge to the tourism industry here. After two booming years when the state was open while many other places weren't, travelers have Florida fatigue, and the hotel industry is seeing a slowdown, says Ritter. We're not seeing the demand or the trend that we had hoped we would be seeing, and we believe that it is in part due to things that are are happening at the state level. That's the case for the small beauty and the beach girlfriends weekend. Despite attendees gushing about last year's getaway, it was it was really good. Like next year, I'm bringing like 15 back. This year, if she brings those extra 15 people with her to the weekend, they may be going to South Carolina instead of Florida. For NPR News, I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. Later on All Things Considered, U.S. automakers are making the switch to electric vehicles. That requires batteries and lots of them. The big three have relied on China as their battery supplier. Now Ford plans to make theirs here in America. Listen on the radio, on your phone, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, for more than a century, Ohio voters have had the power to change the state constitution with a simple majority vote. That may change today as part of an effort to block a measure protecting the right to an abortion. Low 80s today with showers likely all day. Thunderstorms may also bring heavy rain and gusty winds. The storms continue tonight. It'll be in the 60s, tomorrow mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Bookseller Josh Cook presents The Art of Libromancy, essays on selling books and reading books, August 22nd. More at portersquarebooks.com. And MathWorks creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. 
powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. Rent in Boston is rising faster than it did last year. A new report from Apartment List shows rent has risen nearly 12 percent since the start of the year. That's compared to just over 9 percent during the same period last year. Officials say a rise in mortgage rates and lack of construction is driving up prices. Rhode Island-based Hasbro says it won't let artists use artificial intelligence to draw characters in one of its popular role-playing games. Fans called the company out after they noticed that a Dungeons & Dragons character in an upcoming book was drawn by AI. Hasbro says it's updating its guidelines to make sure none of its artists use AI in commissioned art going forward. Harpoon Brewery in the Seaport is celebrating National Pickleball Day today. The brewery is opening its new pickleball courts for free to the public. Paddles and equipment will be available for those who want to play. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Oyster populations have fallen 85% worldwide since the late 1800s. Oyster reefs offer natural protection to climate-endangered shorelines, so in Alabama, researchers are working to restore them. That involves toughening up baby oysters against predators, toughening the baby oysters to increase their survival rate in the big, bad, undersea world of Mobile Bay. Guy Busby of Alabama Public Radio reports. Near the small fishing port of Balabatry, eight people in hip-deep water unload hundreds of sacks of oyster shells. We spawn oysters, we settle those onto the shells. Lee Smith is with the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, a marine research center on Alabama's Gulf Coast. Here in Mobile Bay, they're trying to rebuild oyster reefs that have been destroyed by over-harvesting. Today, Smee and his team are putting out up to 20 million baby oysters that grew in a lab. Uh, we grow them for a month, and then we bring them out, and we put them out. So there's baby oysters on the shells when we put them out. And the reason we started doing that, um, the populations of oysters have gotten so low, there's just not enough naturally occurring um, spawning going on. The little lab oyster babies are about the size of a dime and grow best when stuck on the larger oyster shells. This process is called spat on shell. Baby oysters are called spats. These babies also get an advantage. While growing in the lab, crab urine is mixed with their water. The experimental side is part of that spat on shell gets exposed to a predator cue, in this case a blue crab that's caged that we've been feeding oysters to. So when a baby oyster senses this predator cue, it reacts. Uh, That makes some of the oysters toughen up their shells because oysters are known to toughen up, harden their shells when predators are around. 
So here in Mobile Bay, Smee says half the oyster babies have been exposed to the crab unit, and the others have not. Uh, last year we found that, that mortality in the ones that were not exposed to predators after about six months was 90%, which isn't terribly unexpected for oysters. I mean, they spawn a lot and a lot of them die. Um, but that, that rate was only like 70% in the ones that had predator cues. Oyster reefs are important for estuary ecosystems like this one. They help protect the coastline and provide food for many other marine species. What's now needed is a way to grow stronger oysters on a commercial level, says Ben Belgrade, a scientist at Dolphin Island Sea Lab. Before we were doing this in little containers, toughening in up maybe a couple hundred oysters at a time, that's not going to work for reef restoration. We need to be able to do this to millions of individuals simultaneously. The idea is to recreate the chemicals that trigger shell growth. Our next goal with this is actually to be able to identify the molecules that the predators are releasing and be able to just synthesize those in the lab and fertilize our oysters with them like we fertilize our crops with nitrogen to make them grow bigger. Two of those molecules, Belgrade says, have already been identified by a lab at Georgia Tech, and that research is ongoing. It's all part of a worldwide effort to restore oyster reefs. Matthew Ogburn is an oyster reef restoration scientist with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. He says there are experiments rotating harvest areas to allow oysters time to grow and breeding disease-resistant oysters. There's a lot of different research projects going on to, to try to figure out how what the best methods are for oyster restoration. And he says this research in Mobile Bay could potentially have a lot of value for oyster reef restoration going forward. For NPR News, I'm Guy Busby in Biola Battery, Alabama. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the story of one of the couriers bringing fentanyl into the U.S. from Mexico through legal ports of entry. It's 7.49. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Officials in Ukraine say at least seven people were killed during a Russian missile attack on a residential building in the eastern part of the country. A special election in Ohio will let voters decide whether to make it more difficult to add new amendments to the state constitution. And President Biden will be at the Grand Canyon today to designate a million acres of land as a new national monument. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Showers and thunderstorms today. The rain may be heavy at times, and there's a flood watch in effect. It'll be in the low 80s. Tonight, 60s, and the storms continue. It clears up overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Rural areas across the country saw a surge in population during COVID, particularly outdoor recreation destinations like ski towns. Those places also saw a surge in unsheltered populations as wealthier new arrivals drove housing prices up and affordable rental vacancies down. This new version of rural poverty is not being received well in some places, like Kalispell, Montana, which has seen a rise in violence that recently turned deadly. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. On a warm evening, a band warms up at a popular park in downtown Kalispell, population 30,000. People stroll under the shade of evergreens, munching on vines from food trucks. Others lounge on the lawn. Kalispell is a popular tourism destination about 30 miles from the towering peaks of Glacier National Park. During the pandemic, Kalispell became one of the fastest growing cities of its size in America. Home prices have gone up by nearly 50 percent since 2020. There's a shortage of rentals, and the local emergency shelter has seen the population it serves double to more than 300 people last winter. Stroll around the park, and there are visible signs of the unsheltered population. A pair of crutches lies under a tree. Nearby is someone sleeping on a bench. There's been a noticeable increase in the number of people living on the streets. Randy Brodell has been county commissioner here for five years. Like most registered voters here, he's a Republican. And he says the growing number of unsheltered people is a problem. Families are use, able to use our parks and our trails less and less because of the fear they have of being accosted by transients and vagrants in our community. Earlier this year, Brodell and his fellow Republican commissioners penned an open letter that called on locals to, quote, stop enabling the homeless lifestyle and claimed without evidence that local shelters were attracting people from other states. He says cleaning up homeless encampments is costing the county real money. The reality is the letter was was to remind our community that people that are takers uh, of taxpayer services without being part of the community are really who is causing hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a million dollars this year in, in uh, costs to the taxpayer. Back at the park, Jesse Green is walking down a local bike path as the sun sets. I wonder if we should go to Woodland first. Green is a 45-year-old veteran with a peppered gray beard. He fell in hard times when he hurt his back, making it hard for him to work. Now he lives on the streets. Lately, he walks the local trails when it starts to get dark to check on unsheltered people he knows as they head to camp. It's a routine he started recently. He was right when Scott died. I didn't feel the need to do that before. Scott is 60-year-old Scott Bryant, who lived unsheltered in Kalispell. One night in June, police say 19-year-old Caleb Fleck beat him to death and then bragged about it on video posted to social media that shows Brian motionless, bleeding face down in a gas station parking lot. Green says he knew Brian. Scott had brain injuries and yummy. He beat cancer. He had a lot of things wrong with him, and he was very, very small in stature. You know what I mean? So it's like, yo, to me, you're a punk because you you target individuals like that, or you wait till individuals are vulnerable, and then you target them. Green descends a hill into a local park. There are clothes drying on the line, sleeping bags, and other evidence of camps. You, look, you see that? So you know somebody be over here, right? 
Green says homeless people here are scared after Brian was killed. They think the letter from County Commissioner Brodell disparaging them is directly related to him being attacked. Green says it's become harder to find people he knows. They're hiding. Green says soon after the letter was published, unsheltered people here were harassed more. There were more physical attacks. He hoped Brian's murder would end that, but says harassment and violence continue. Is that Miss Mary? What you doing walking around by yourself, Miss Mary? Under the shade of towering pine trees in a local park, Mary Doxy is walking back from doing some errands. Doxy has housing right now, but has fallen in and out of homelessness over the years. And I'm walking by myself and I ain't got no pepper spray and I had to walk all the way over to Apple um, Way. you're just stubborn. I know. You know what it is. You're just stubborn. <laughs> she knows all too well the risk she's taking. Two months ago, she says a group of young men attacked her and the man she was with. And they kicked Timbo in the head and kicked him in the ribs while they were surrounding me. She ran away and called 911. Homeless shelters across Montana have reported similar spikes in attacks, though they aren't officially tracking data. Donald Whitehead with the National Coalition for the Homeless says it's part of a national trend. During COVID, we were seeing an increase in, in violence. And it again correlates with a five-year increase in unsheltered homelessness. Homelessness nationwide hit record levels in 2022. And the coalition says violent attacks against unsheltered people increased 5% between 2020 and 2022. Whitehead expects the trend to worsen. What kind do you think we should get? Just like chocolate chip? At a grocery store not far from where Scott Ryan was murdered, a group of friends are picking up water, bug spray, and energy bars to hand out to unsheltered locals. Jason Bell, who helped start this group, works with homeless populations as part of his day job. He started joining these nightly walks after Scott Bryan was killed. He's happy to spend his own money and time to help out any way he can. We didn't know what to do, especially after such a big situation. And, you know, people were attacked prior and we knew that was going on. But just that something had to be done. Bell says it's not just about handing out supplies. They want to show the unsheltered community that people care about how they're doing as attacks continue to happen. As they walk across the parking lot, they see a young woman they regularly meet who tells them she just found housing. Great hugs. She nearly tackles each member of the group as she hugs them in excitement. It's one bright spot before they continue down the trail to let others know they're here to support them. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Kalispell, Montana. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Cloudy and low 80s today. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms that may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Those storms may continue into this evening and it'll fall into the 60s tomorrow mid-80s and mostly sunny. There's a slight chance of showers on Thursday, otherwise mostly sunny and mid-80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. 
The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is this weekend. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Powerful storms hitting the East Coast have killed two people, canceled thousands of flights, and knocked out power to more than a million homes and businesses. It's Tuesday, August 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Ohio voters decide today whether to raise the standard to change the state constitution. It's an attempt to keep an abortion access amendment from passing this fall. Also, more states are adopting policies that encourage young people to vote. And this hour, Professor Anita Hill remembers Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree, who represented Hill when she accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. I can't imagine having to go through that process without his support and and his leadership. In sports, Red Sox win, rain and thunderstorms in the 80s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden is on a three-state swing through the western U.S. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the president is starting his trip today in Arizona. Biden is expected to announce plans for a new national monument to preserve one million acres during a stop today at the Grand Canyon. From Arizona, Biden will then head to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to make another pitch for his economic agenda. On Thursday, Biden will travel to Salt Lake City, Utah, to mark one year since Congress passed the Bipartisan PACS Act, which provides benefits to U.S. service members who were exposed to toxic substances. NPR's Windsor Johnston. A federal judge has dismissed former President Donald Trump's defamation countersuit against writer E. Jean Carroll. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has more. Trump and his attorneys had claimed that the author and former magazine writer defamed Trump when she said he raped her on CNN. When she said this, Carroll was being interviewed after she won one of her lawsuits against Trump. The jury in that case found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carroll and defaming her. In dismissing Trump's countersuit, federal judge Lewis Kaplan said Carroll's statements repeating the claim that Trump had raped her were substantially true. This latest development means that an upcoming January 15th trial in a previous lawsuit filed by Carroll against Trump will continue. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Executives at Zoom say the company does not use customer data to train its artificial intelligence tools. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the announcement comes after reports that Zoom uses what people say on video calls to advance its AI. Tech bloggers recently discovered that Zoom quietly updated its terms of service to say that Zoom reserves the right to train its AI on customers' video, audio, and chat transcripts without explicit permission. After a backlash from customers, Zoom went on the defensive, saying in a statement that it would not use customer data to improve its AI without consent. But critics point out that Zoom has a poor track record on data privacy. 
Zoom was criticized in 2020 after providing end-to-end encryption only to customers who paid for the service. A year later, the company agreed to an $85 million settlement over sharing customer data with Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn without consent. Bobby Allen, NPR News. The polls are open in Ohio in a special election. Voters are deciding whether to raise the threshold for amending the state constitution and to impose more stringent standards to get an amendment on the ballot in the first place. Abortion rights activists oppose the changes. In November, voters in Ohio are to consider a proposed constitutional amendment to protect access to abortion in the state. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. At least two people died yesterday in storms that swept across the southern and eastern U.S. Ten states posted tornado watches and warnings. The border community of Eagle Pass, Texas, held a vigil last night to mourn the lives lost crossing the Rio Grande. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz reports. When I listen to mariachi music, it touches my heart because I know that our culture is friendly and we are good people. Eagle Pass resident Jesse Fuentes says it's been hard to watch people risk their lives to cross and even harder to watch the recent militarization of the area by Governor Greg Abbott to stop them, including miles of razor wire and a thousand foot string of buoys. Our river is crying. It is stressed. It has been terrorized. There have been 91 drowning deaths in this area of the river since 2018. Two of those deaths occurred in the past week. One of them was found caught in Abbott's buoys. Those who gathered for the vigil had a message in common. We can do better. For NPR News, I'm Dan Katz. A standoff continues in Niger nearly two weeks after the military deposed the democratically elected president. West African leaders are holding a meeting Thursday to discuss a military intervention. The coup leaders are resisting calls to restore democracy, including from the U.S., They met yesterday with the acting deputy secretary of state. Victoria Nuland said they had frank and difficult talks, but the mutinous officers were unreceptive to appeals to start negotiations. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Advocates say Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is considering declaring a state of emergency to address the record number of homeless families in the state-run shelter system. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, the governor is scheduled to make an announcement related to the shelter system today. With more than 5,000 households in shelter, there are few options for new families. Kelly Turley of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless says she's been in regular touch with state officials. The state expects the number of families approved for shelter to increase somewhat dramatically in the coming weeks and months. An emergency declaration could unlock federal funding and provide flexibility to set up new shelter. But Turley worries it could be used to limit families' legal right to shelter. We're concerned that it will be very difficult to restore that right to shelter. And she worries about families that could be turned away or waitlisted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. A school building in Somerville is closed until further notice after asbestos was dis- detected inside. The Winter Hill Community Innovation School was already undergoing a structural review after a section of concrete fell from the ceiling in May. The school serves more than 400 students from pre-K through 8th grade. School officials say those students will attend another location for the upcoming academic year.
Cambridge is promoting a new program to help residents electrify their homes. The city has partnered with two local firms to help residents go green by installing equipment, including induction stoves, heat pumps and solar panels. Cambridge energy planner Nikhil Nedkarni says it's part of the city's broader climate goals. Cambridge is committed to reaching zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, if not sooner. Building out a program to support our residents in making these upgrades easier is an important part of how we'll get there. The city says 100 people have already signed up for free consultations in the program's first two weeks. If you're a fan of New England autumns, mark your calendar for October 11th. That's when the Old Farmer's Almanac now predicts most of the region will experience peak fall colors. The New Hampshire publication notes you'll likely see foliage begin to change as early as mid-September. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox defeated Kansas City by four runs last night at Fenway. That was thanks to a walk-off home run by Pablo Reyes. The win ended a four-game losing streak for the Sox. The teams play again tonight at 7. A flood watch is in effect throughout most of Massachusetts until midnight tonight, as storms could bring as much as two inches of rain to the Boston area. Bill Lethem is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Given the environment that we're in, there is a, a low risk of uh, like the, of a tornado. I'm now saying if it's going to happen, you know, directly over the Boston metro is difficult at this point. But there is a, a low risk of a, of a tornado, t- uh, especially during the the morning here. We'll have highs in the low 80s today. Tonight, the showers and thunderstorms continue and temperatures cool down to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and breezy with highs in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We are more than one year ahead of the 2024 election. But at this time, some Republicans are asking, what could they do if their party should recapture the presidency? In a few minutes, we'll hear one conservative proposal to attack climate change, or rather, to attack climate change regulation. First, this day, this Tuesday in August, is Election Day in Ohio. The Republican-dominated state legislature arranged that vote for today, a time when historically fewer people pay attention to politics. If approved, the ballot measure would make it harder to change the state's constitution. So instead of a majority to change it, as in the past, Republicans want to require 60 percent to make a change. And that is a bid to lock in anti-abortion laws before another ballot measure on abortion rights in November. State House News Bureau's Karen Kassler joins us now from Columbus, Ohio, where she's covering this. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so we heard it goes from 50 percent or 50 plus one to 60 percent to change the Constitution. Uh, is that all that's in this on this measure? That is the part that's getting the most focus, but there is a kind of under the radar part that would make it even harder for grassroots groups to even get onto the ballot. It would increase the number of counties where groups would have to get valid signatures from 44 as in current law to 88 counties. That would make Ohio the only state in the country that would require signatures from each and every county in Ohio. It would also mean failure to get signatures in a particular county would block 
the group from actually making the ballot and even not even getting to the 60% threshold. So this really does make it more difficult not only to pass constitutional amendments by citizens and groups, but even to get on the ballot. How did this happen to get on the ballot itself right now? Well, you mentioned it. It's an abortion amendment that's coming up in fall. Last summer, after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the right to abortion, Ohio's six-week abortion ban went into effect. There were a lot of terrible stories, including one of a 10-year-old rape victim who had to go to Indiana to get treatment because no Ohio doctor felt comfortable treating her. And so abortion rights groups then started to draft an amendment to guarantee abortion rights in Ohio's constitution. Abortion rights have been upheld in other red states, but by less than 60%. And so state lawmakers brought up the idea of let's raise the threshold to get an amendment to 60%. And that's where we are right now. Um, I just want to underline this to be very clear because it's complicated. You're telling me that Republicans looked ahead and saw that they might lose an election in November on abortion. So they said, let's change the rules so that even when we lose, we win. Is that correct? Well, Republicans will tell you it's about more than just abortion, that they're worried about keeping out-of-state special interests with a lot of money from buying their way into Ohio's Constitution. But what's interesting in this is that out-of-state money has been coming in on both sides of this issue, and, and certainly the abortion issue coming up in just a couple of months is one thing that is brought up quite often as this is the reason that this vote is happening now in the middle of summer. Well, let's talk about it being in the middle of summer. This is a time when you have very light turnout elections and a small interest group can turn an election. So is this turning out to be a low turnout election as, as Republicans might have hoped? It's probably going to be a low turnout election. I mean, comparatively, people are thinking about other things rather than voting. But the turnout so far, because Ohio has a month of early voting, has been pretty tremendous. I mean, there have been lines in some urban areas. And so today's turnout is going to be really important. Karen Kassler is the bureau chief at the State House News Bureau in Ohio, and she is covering today's vote on changing the state constitution happening on this Tuesday in August. Karen, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Thanks. If Republicans recapture the White House in 2024, some will be ready with a climate policy. A think tank called the Heritage Foundation made a wide range of policy recommendations in what they call Project 2025. Now, the debate on climate is heated no pun intended, with lots of buzzwords and emotions. So we propose in the next few minutes to look at this proposal slowly with lots of questions. We begin with the U.S. government's current view of climate change as expressed by President Biden. It is literally not figuratively a clear and present danger. The health of our citizens and our communities is literally at stake. Biden cited a United Nations climate report confirming many scientific studies that warn of a range of grim effects. The Heritage Foundation report frames the issue differently. Mandy Gunasekra wrote the section on the Environmental Protection Agency, where she was chief of staff in the Trump administration. Would you first define the problem that you see that you want to address? Yeah, certainly. I believe that the Environmental Protection Agency recently, it's become an instrument of overregulation. Where the Biden administration considers it urgent to address the climate, Gunasekra says it's urgent to address regulation. She says her report favors lower greenhouse gas emissions, but... It is a balanced approach so that we don't get caught up in pushing out unproven technologies or setting us to comply with political timelines in a way that creates unintended consequences. 
In your view, is human-caused climate change real? Yes. You write of it, however, as a perceived threat that the left is overstating. What do you mean by that? Well, it is overstated. A lot of the general rhetoric, it's more about capturing headlines or pulling from some of the most extreme analyses that are out there. A lot of the rhetoric that the public sees and experiences is based on a picture that's not consistent with what we've seen with observed climate data and uh, that the forecasts actually suggest a mild and manageable climate change in the future. In our extended conversation, Gunasekra said she had consulted multiple climate scientists. But when we asked which scientists helped her conclude that climate change would be, quote, mild and manageable, she did not name them. One recent study connected climate change to our current record hot summer. She dismissed that. Some home insurance companies are pulling out of California and Florida, partly due to increased climate risk. She dismissed that too. Certainly, there are businesses making decisions based on their relative outlook. But back to the scientific discussion, there is a high admittance of existing uncertainties. Again, granting that there are uncertainties here, and we should be clear about that, the United Nations foresees very bad or bad outcomes. The Pentagon foresees bad outcomes. NASA foresees bad outcomes. NOAA foresees bad outcomes. Thousands of peer-reviewed studies have looked at different aspects of this. Who is someone that you rely on to tell you that the climate effects would be mild and manageable? Yeah, if you get past a lot of what are political talking points coming from these agencies right now, the ones that you mentioned that are being impacted by the agenda of the Biden administration. If you dig into a lot of those papers, then they do reveal that the observed data and the relative outlooks, as far as our understanding goes, lends itself to a more mild and manageable outlook. You wrote that the uh, extreme climate forecasts are, quote, a favored tool that the left uses to scare the American public into accepting their ineffective, liberty-crushing regulations. When I read that, it sounds like you think the real goal here is not to address climate at all. The real goal is to regulate people. What evidence draws you to think that the left, however you describe or imagine them, has this particular motive that all they want to do is regulate people for no reason at all? Yeah, so you can look at the agenda that's been coming out of the Biden administration. There are regulations from how power plants generate electricity to the types of appliances that consumers can ultimately use from plant to plug. We're arriving now at the heart of the conservative approach to climate change. Julia Simon covers climate solutions for NPR and listened into our interview. And Julia, what's going on here? As you can hear, these days conservatives are often less likely to deny climate change, but they are discounting the urgency. They are attacking the solutions. There's a lot of emphasis here on things like electrification of appliances, electric cars, this idea that climate solutions deprive people of choice and that these things don't work. This is in line with leading Republican candidate Donald Trump, who attacked electric vehicles earlier this year. Meanwhile, the cars don't go far. The range is even worse in the winter. The materials are all made in China. Broadly speaking, so this critique is inaccurate. Many things like electric cars or efficient appliances do work and are even popular, though the technology is still evolving. That's Julia Simon. Now, the Heritage Foundation report calls on the United States to more thoroughly examine problems with climate solutions 
and also slow down regulations. Mandy Gunasekra favors new requirements for passing federal regulations and says the U.S. also should block states and oppose international organizations when they propose higher standards. Is this a fair statement? You are willing to address climate change to the extent that you think it is a problem and you do not think it is that big a problem. Is that a fair statement? I would say that the Project 2025, an approach that we would take, includes addressing climate change while also ensuring we do not and we are not distracted from fulfilling other important aspects of the administration. Mandy Gunasekra wrote part of a Heritage Foundation report on what the next Republican president could do. NPR's Julia Simon is still with us. And Julia, how big a change would this be from the current administration? This is a departure from the scientific consensus, which foresees a range of very serious outcomes. The report also proposes bringing senior people into EPA, emphasizing backgrounds in management as opposed to backgrounds in science. Ultimately, if the ideas in this report are implemented, it would take apart lots of climate solutions, agency by agency, and that would have very real impacts on reducing the country's planet heating emissions. Julia, thanks. Thank you. She's NPR's climate solutions reporter. Now we reached out again to the Heritage Foundation to ask which climate scientists they consulted. A spokesman replies that they consult, quote, many scientists and respect their desire to provide this guidance in confidence. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, more gay and bisexual men will be able to donate blood after the Red Cross changed rules it had in place for decades. It's 821. A weather buoy near Key Largo, Florida, has recorded water temperatures over 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like swimming in a hot tub. It's not good for marine life or the rest of us who rely on predictable ocean currents. Almost half the world's oceans are experiencing marine heat waves right now. Is it a passing phenomenon or more evidence of a permanently warming planet? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms today, and we do have a flood watch in effect. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s. Tonight, those fall to the 60s, and the storms continue mainly before about 8 p.m. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. As overdose deaths from fentanyl have soared, we've heard a lot about the dangers of the synthetic drug and how it's flowing across the southern border from Mexico. What we've rarely heard are the voices of the people, largely U.S. citizens, who actually smuggle that fentanyl across the border. NPR's Joel Rose talked to one of those couriers and brings us her story. Haley says she had never done anything like this before. One night, she was hanging out with a guy she knew who asked if she wanted to make some extra money. I'm very embarrassed about it, I guess you could say. I'm very, like, ashamed that I didn't know better with carrying it over. Haley is 32 years old. She asked us not to use her last name because she wants to protect her three children. In a way, that is what got her into this. Haley was trying to make money to pay her bills, she says, so that she could regain custody of her children. And $500 seemed like a lot of money. That was the first time I've ever done it. I guess because when you're on drugs, your mind's not fully there. You're not fully thinking. You're just like, okay, I can get this over with and get my bills paid, you know? At the time, Haley was smoking methamphetamine. She'd been addicted to meth once before and gotten sober. But then she relapsed after a bad breakup. This was during the COVID pandemic in 2021. And she was having trouble finding work in Tucson, Arizona, where she lived. So she agreed to drive to Mexico and come back with a bag of pills hidden inside her body. It was fentanyl. I did carry um, a thousand pills. It was inside of a condom. Prosecutors and defense lawyers both told me that Haley's story is typical, in the sense that the vast majority of illicit fentanyl, close to 90 percent, is seized at ports of entry. Immigration authorities say nearly all of that is smuggled by people who are legally authorized to cross, more than half by U.S. citizens like Haley. Virtually none is smuggled by migrants seeking asylum. Sometimes fentanyl is hidden in tractor trailers, carrying loads of legitimate cargo. But more often, it's hidden in passenger cars or on the bodies of pedestrians. There's a popular misconception that it is these giant, giant seizures that are driving the numbers. And that's not it. Adam Gordon is a federal prosecutor in San Diego, one of the busiest smuggling points for fentanyl on the U.S.-Mexico border. The cases that we see every day are individuals who have five kilos of fentanyl and 10 kilos of methamphetamine. And those cases are happening constantly. Gordon says drug cartels routinely recruit couriers or mules to get their products across the border. And they're sophisticated about who they target for the job. Michael Humphreys is the port director for U.S. Customs and Border Protection in Nogales, Arizona, the same port where Haley tried to cross back from Mexico. They're looking for somebody we're not going to pay a lot of attention to. They target certain people uh, and they offer money to drive through. I've been at this for over 36 years, and it's been like that forever. I've seen 20-year-old couriers. I've seen 60-year-old couriers. It's impossible to generalize. Stephanie Hepford is an assistant U.S. attorney in Tucson who has prosecuted dozens of smuggling cases. The cartels are smart. They're going to pick couriers that they think are going to be more successful at that point in time. Maybe a a middle-aged female is going to be a better option than a 20-year-old male. Law enforcement officials say the ideal candidate is someone who has legal permission to cross the border and goes back and forth a lot because they won't attract attention from customs officers at the port. In that sense, Haley was not a good candidate. I don't go to Mexico. That's not something I do. So, yeah, they they knew something was up. The officer asked Haley what she was doing in Mexico. Because this is your first time coming back into the United States, we need to secondary you. And I already knew, you know, I was caught. It was done. 
in my heart, I knew that I was doing wrong, you know? So I started freaking out, and I kind of told on myself. Haley confessed. She was arrested and charged. She pleaded guilty and went to prison. That's when she met lots of women who had carried drugs through the ports, some of them repeatedly. I've heard girls talk about, you know, I did it. I had it inside of me. Or, and I'm just like, aren't you lucky? Like, you know, I got caught my first time. People do it over and over again because the money is so good. Law enforcement officials say there is no shortage of people who are willing to do this work. Again, Adam Gordon, the prosecutor in San Diego. Usually they're in very desperate straits. These are individuals who are not wealthy, typically, who are usually not being paid very much. Think of anywhere from, call it $1,000 to $5,000 to drive a vehicle across. A lot of it is driven, unfortunately, by addiction. Typically, my clients have hit rock bottom. Jessica Turk is a defense lawyer outside Tucson. She takes on clients who can't afford a private lawyer, mostly drug smuggling and human smuggling cases. Turk says many of her clients are struggling with addiction. Their drug addiction has put them on the street, or they're living in a shed, or they're living in a car. They need money to fuel an addiction. And this is an opportunity that regularly presents itself to people in this area. When couriers get caught at the border, it's often their first serious criminal offense. That was the case for Haley. She cooperated with prosecutors in exchange for a lighter sentence and served six months in prison. But the hardest part, she says, was losing custody of her children. That one decision that I had made to carry, my ex-sister-in-law had to adopt my kids because I got sentenced and I was in jail. Yeah, that was hard. Haley has been sober now for 18 months. She has a job, just bought a car, and she gets to see her kids again. Though she says it's been hard trying to rebuild their trust. Six months ago from today, I could tell you my kids didn't really want to be around me. They didn't want to spend the night with me. Today, they're always like, Mom, can we spend another night with you? Mom. Haley says things could have gone a lot worse, considering how much fentanyl she was carrying inside her body. That's a lot of pills. I mean, it's enough to kill a thousand people, right? <laughs> it was scary. If they would have opened inside of me, I'd be dead. You know, it's a, it's a very scary thought. So it's thoughts I don't like to think about a lot, you know? In hindsight, Haley says getting caught at the border on her first attempt was actually good luck. Joel Rose, NPR News, Nogales, Arizona. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes here on WBUR's Morning Edition. Professor Anita Hill discusses the legacy of celebrated civil rights advocate and Harvard Law professor Charles Ogletree, who died last week at age 70. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A large section of the southern U.S. is expecting more extreme heat today. From Texas across the Gulf Coast region into Florida, we've got heat advisories 
In excessive heat warning, though, it's really the combination of high temperatures and humidity. That's meteorologist Mark Chenard at the National Weather Service. Dallas and Houston are expecting afternoon highs topping 100 degrees. Baton Rouge and New Orleans in Louisiana will be in the upper 90s. Strong storms yesterday are blamed for at least two deaths, one in Alabama and another in South Carolina. A ballot measure goes before voters in Ohio today. The measure seeks to require a 60 percent vote to change the state's constitution. Currently, a simple majority is what's required. Karen Kassler with the State House News Bureau in Columbus says the ballot measure precedes one on abortion rights set for November. Republicans will tell you it's about more than just abortion, that they're worried about keeping out-of-state special interests with a lot of money from buying their way into Ohio's Constitution. But what's interesting in this is that out-of-state money has been coming in on both sides of this issue, and, and certainly the abortion issue coming up in just a couple of months is one thing that is brought up quite often as this is the reason that this ha- vote is happening now in the middle of summer. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The utility Eversource has parted ways with the American Gas Association. That's the powerful industry group that many environmentalists say has been instrumental in blocking climate policy around the country. Eversource tells WBUR it left the group last year. That's when it started focusing on cutting emissions in its operations. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. Experts say Eversource is the first major utility to cancel its membership with the American Gas Association over diverging climate agendas, making this a very big deal. Charlie Spatz is with the Energy and Policy Institute, a utility watchdog group. To see a utility leave and break ranks over a climate issue, that's certainly unprecedented. Spatz says the American Gas Association has worked to fight local efforts to ban fossil fuels in new buildings and funded pro-gas front groups around the country. Eversource says it joined new industry groups with a stronger focus on clean energy and decarbonization. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A plan to convert a Worcester motel into apartments for unhoused people is now one step closer to realization. The Telegram and Gazette reports a housing nonprofit has finalized the purchase of the Quality Inn and Suites in the Lincoln Street neighborhood. The group intends to convert the building into 90 affordable apartments. Some residents oppose the project. They say the neighborhood is already oversaturated with addiction and homeless services. The city of Medford plans to cut the ribbon later today on a brand-new playground for preschoolers. The Morrison Park playground features a sandbox, swings, balance balls, and a fishnet climber. The site has also been repaved with a porous rubber surface to protect kids' knees and the roots of trees. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox ended their four-game losing streak in dramatic fashion last night. Pablo Reyes hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth inning that clinched a 6-2 win over Kansas City for the Sox. The teams will play again at Fenway tonight. 
And in your forecast, low 80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers and thunderstorms at any point. We may get up to two inches of rain and there is a flood watch in effect. The stormy weather continues tonight as temperatures dip into the 60s. We dry up tomorrow for a sunny day in the mid 80s. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Red Cross is adopting new guidelines that will change who is eligible to donate blood. And that's a big deal because the Red Cross contributes about 40 percent of the nation's blood supply. It's following the lead of the Food and Drug Administration, which altered longstanding rules about gay and bisexual men. For decades, the FDA said it was trying to protect the blood supply from HIV by restricting donations from gay and bisexual men. But now, instead of using sexual orientation, the agency is focusing on sexual behavior. Fennett Narapil is a health reporter for The Washington Post, and he's covering this. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And I guess we should just note some people may be uncomfortable with the language in this story, and if so, it's going to last a little bit more than than three minutes. But let's talk about what the rules are because this is this this matters a lot. Who gets to donate blood now as compared to in the past? So the FDA used to have a lifetime ban that prevented gay men from donating blood. It's been relaxed a few times since then, but this latest change now allows monogamous gay and bisexual men to give blood for the first time. That's because this prohibition shifts away from whether you're a man who has sex with other men to asking more gender neutral questions. The prohibition now applies to anyone who's had a new or multiple sexual partners in the last three months and if you had anal sex. This applies to people who are gay, straight, bi, men, women, non-binary, and it also means that you're going to see heterosexuals who are banned from giving blood for the first time. Well, this is interesting. Is this then an argument that the old guidelines were not really the safest guidelines because it is the behavior that makes you vulnerable? The change in guidelines is really more about fairness, because even under these new guidelines, you're seeing people who are banned, even if they're not at elevated risks of HIV. But for decades, there have been complaints that gay men are treated as pariahs, and that these standards that used to be in place were too broad. And you had people who are banned from giving blood, even if they're also at low risk for HIV because of the way that they practice safe sex. I guess we should mention there are tests to detect HIV, I suppose. Why is that not sufficient or not deemed to be sufficient to keep the blood supply safe? Yes, we do have a highly sensitive uh, screening measure that can detect HIV in blood within 11 to 33 days of infection. But that also means that it might miss an HIV infection in the early days. And so that's why you have this three-month standard, which is meant to have an extra buffer time. How big a deal is it that the Red Cross now would follow this change in FDA guidelines and alter their own guidelines, given the huge role they play in the nation's blood supply? 
So as you mentioned at the top, the Red Cross contributes to a huge portion of the nation's blood supply. So there have been some independent blood centers that have already made this change, but this is considered a big deal because this is one of the biggest shifts that we've seen in decades. So you're going to have monogamous gained bisexual men who can give blood for the first time because of the changes that you've seen this week. Fennett Narapil of The Washington Post, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. 2023 is an off year for major U.S. elections, but the effort to register voters is ongoing. And some states are focusing on how they can make it easier for young, new voters to join their roles. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Estrella Torres has spent a lot of time registering mostly young voters in Brownsville, Texas, for a group called Texas Rising. She reassures many new voters that it's not their fault they're confused or overwhelmed with the process of registering. She says states like Texas could make it easier. For example, Texas is one of only a handful of states without online voter registration. And the younger generation, you know, these old systems, they're just not satisfied with it anymore. There are many reasons that registering to vote might be a little trickier for coming-of-age voters compared to everyone else. For one, most young people aren't in the habit of interacting with the government. And Charlotte Hill, the director of the Democracy Policy Initiative at UC Berkeley, says there's the added issue that young people move a lot. You can think back to being 18. You probably left your parents' house. You might have gone to college or started a new job somewhere. So even if you had been registered right when you turned 18, you might have to register again just a handful of months later and update that address. Lately, lawmakers in some states have been easing this burden for coming-of-age voters. Kay Kawashima-Ginsburg studies young voters at Tufts University. She says some of the most helpful policies simplify registration on the voters' end. So it's really important that the process of voter registration becomes almost invisible to young people. That's really how you get as many people as possible. A good example of that is automatic voter registration, which is not exactly automatic. How this typically works is when someone is getting a driver's license, they're registered to vote using the information they gave the DMV. David Becker with the Nonpartisan Center for Election Innovation and Research says this works particularly well for young people. When so many of them are going into government agencies at or before the time when they turn 18. What states have found is that is the best time to get the, get the vast majority of students registered. Some Republicans claim that automatic voter registration could make it easier for ineligible people to get on a state's voter rolls. But Georgia's AVR program was put in place by Republicans a few years ago. And Becker says it's been working really well. And what they have found is, whereas in most states, young voters register at much lower rates than the rest of voters, they are starting to achieve parity. And that's a remarkable thing. And experts say automatic voter registration is even more effective when you pair it with pre-registration, which states like Minnesota have recently adopted. About half of states have pre-registration, which allows 16 or 17-year-olds to give their information when they get their driver's license. And then when they turn 18, they are officially registered. Kawashima Ginsburg at Tufts says there's a good reason this policy is helpful. A vast majority of young people are still at home with their family or caregivers at that age. So when we have a big burden of voter registration, 
at least you have a supporter who's probably already done this, know where your papers are. Voters under 30, particularly teenagers, have historically had the lowest registration rates of any age group in the U.S. But UC Berkeley's Charlotte Hill says states with policies aimed at making registering easier have higher rates among young people. She says that's proof it's about barriers and not motivation. You can look at that as a personal failure, or you can step back and recognize that our system does not serve young people. It hasn't been built to serve voters who are new. Hill says easing the burden of registering to vote for young people also has the added benefit of making it easier for all voters. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what led to the demise of the trucking company Yellow after nearly 100 years in business hauling cargo for big companies like Walmart and Home Depot. Low 80s today with showers likely all day. Thunderstorms could also bring heavy rain and gusty winds. The storms continue tonight. It'll be in the 60s. Tomorrow, mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now, it is 76 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton. Now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com and Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Fewer people are buying luxury homes in the Boston area. A new report from Redfin shows sales of high-end homes are down 25 percent. Officials say a small supply of homes and high interest rates are slowing down sales. Prices of luxury homes have only risen half a percent. Boston-based Ginkgo Bioworks plans to collaborate with pharmaceutical company Merck. The company's plan to focus on improving biologic manufacturing. This is the second partnership between Ginkgo and Merck. Last year, they collaborated on active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturing. A Brookline ice cream shop plans to expand into Cambridge. Jamie's Ice Cream plans to open its second location between Harvard and Union Squares. Officials say construction will be complete in September or October. It's unclear when the shop will open. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Remembrances and tributes continue this week for Charles Ogletree, the landmark Harvard law professor and civil rights scholar who died last week at age 70. Ogletree had many notable clients, including Anita Hill. He represented her when she accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment during Thomas's 1991 Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justice. Hill is now a professor of social policy, law, and women's studies at Brandeis University, and she joins me now. Professor Hill, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you for your condolences. 
How are you reflecting on who Professor Ogletree was and what he accomplished? First of all, he was an eloquent speaker and a great storyteller. And he saw the law as a compelling force in the human experience. He was able to tell the story of reparations in Tulsa and the story of civil rights and human rights throughout the globe, including in South Africa. He endeavored to open people's minds to the reality of how race and class and gender and justice collide. When did you first meet him? Uh, I first met Charles Ogletree back in the early to mid-80s when we were both young law teachers. We were part of a generation of legal scholars whose lives had been shaped by Brown versus the Board of Education, and we were moving into law teaching, um, reforming the way law was being taught and perceived. I met him as I was a coach of my moot court team at the University of Oklahoma, and Charles was the coach of the moot court team from Harvard. And Charles likes to say that my teams always beat his, but I'm sure that his teams had the best coach. How was the decision made for him to represent you in the Thomas hearings? It wasn't that Charles Ogletree was a specialist in sexual harassment, but what was really important was that Charles understood that the laws that he had been working on were really relevant to this issue of sexual harassment. And he was a gifted trial lawyer. And so he knew that it was important for my story to be heard. I remember watching those hearings and just seeing him always right behind you. What was it like to have that kind of support? It was, it was absolutely critical. I can't imagine having to go through that process without uh, his support and, and his leadership. Charles's legal expertise was absolutely necessary for me to feel confident stepping up and giving my testimony. Was it a risk for him to represent you? It was. It was a career risk. You know, he was coming up for tenure. So the risk to Charles was real. How did Professor Ogletree counsel you when people were attacking your character? What did he say to you? He felt that we had provided that information to the public. The public had heard me, even though the Senate Judiciary Committee may not have or not been willing to act on what they heard. Who carries on the professor's legacy now? Who fills the role he leaves behind in the legal profession and as an advocate for civil rights? You know, there is no one individual who can replace Charles Ogletree. Uh, There are plenty of people out there who are among that generation who grew up in the civil rights era, who went into law because of what they saw and and experienced as a child and what their parents have experienced. I think of all of Charles Ogletree's students and really any number of people who have followed his work and followed in his footsteps. uh, We all have to step up. Professor Anita Hill, I know this is a tough time. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on the coup in Niger. A group of West African countries say they'll meet Thursday to discuss next steps after their order to restore the ousted president was ignored. And we'll hear about a plan in Italy to offer free taxi rides in order to curb drunk driving. It's 8:50. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Residents in Ohio will vote today on whether or not to make it more difficult to pass amendments to the state constitution. Scientists in Europe have officially declared this July as Earth's hottest month on record. And a severe storm is sweeping across the East Coast, leaving over one million people without power and canceling thousands of flights. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Showers and thunderstorms today. The rain may be heavy at times, and there's a flood watch in effect. It'll be in the low 80s. Tonight, 60s, and the storms continue. It clears up overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. Lessons in antitrust, game economics, and bankruptcy in the news today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. A famous private equity firm, KKR, is buying Simon & Schuster. The Paramount Media conglomerate has agreed to sell the 99-year-old book publisher for $1.6 billion. Penguin had tried to buy Simon & Schuster, but the government said that would hurt competition. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Simon & Schuster is one of the biggest book publishers in the country, along with Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Hachette, and Macmillan. It's been doing well in the last couple of years. Its sale to KKR is subject to government approval, but is not likely to raise the same kind of antitrust concerns as the Penguin Random House deal. KKR has bought other book-focused companies in recent years, including Overdrive, a digital distributor that a lot of libraries use, and the audiobook company RB Media, which it just sold. If this deal goes through, employees at Simon & Schuster will get equity in the company, which is rare in publishing. KKR says there will be no layoffs and that Simon & Schuster will retain editorial independence. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. A powerful financial player has launched its own digital currency. It's called PayPal USD, which tells you which company. It's designed not to fluctuate the Bitcoin way. One PayPal USD equals one U.S. dollar if all goes well. They call these stable coins. PayPal says these will lower the cost of paying for things and will use blockchain technology, which makes it hard to fake or otherwise manipulate transactions. One sector watching PayPal USD is the video game industry, which is larger than movies and music combined. 
Now, this is because virtual economies inside games have become real economies. Joost van Droenen is a professor at the Stern School of Business at New York University. Repeatedly, I would get questions from executives and publishers saying, like, why would people spend real world money on digital coins to buy virtual goods inside of a game environment? 15 years ago, that seemed like a weird fantasy, but gaming, as we now know, has grown to this $300 billion a year industry. And a large part of that has the growth really comes from uh, people's ability to customize, personalize and use digital currency to do that. Thing is, a stable, regulated cryptocurrency could make it easier and more reliable for players to pay for things inside games, either to the game companies or to each other, which fits with the evolving business model of games. Gaming has changed from a physical business where you buy a cartridge at retail to a digital service where you create an account and you spend money in an ongoing basis, right? So they look to upsell you constantly on items, on experiences, on expansions, and so on. You know, the front end of that is, of course, this narrative of look at all this content that we have for you. The back end is let's make sure that everybody that wants to pay can. And that's where I think uh, cryptocurrency and stable coins can play a role. NYU's Van Droenen is author of One Up, Creativity, Competition, and the Global Business of Video Games. He's also part of our series, Skin in the Game, as we explore economics and careers using video games. YouTube Marketplace APM for the videos. Markets Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down eight-tenths of a percent. The 10-year interest rate is back below 4%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Glassdoor. Beyond workplace reviews, Glassdoor now offers anonymous talk about careers, salaries, and work life. Professionals swap stories with coworkers and industry insiders who've been there, done that. Find your work people on the new Glassdoor app. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. The venerable trucking company Yellow is kaput, bankrupt. 30,000 employees, mostly truckers, will have to find other work. This is a boon for rival freight companies that can get the business and possibly raise prices, but a headache for the supply chain. Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, is a student of bankruptcy law. Hey, Eric. Hello, David. I mean, there's bankruptcy and there's bankruptcy. This is not just a bid to reorganize to get back going. This looks like the end. Yeah, I think this is the end, my friend. I mean, this is a company that sort of stumbled along, got that huge amount of uh, loans from the government, still can't seem to make things work. So they're doing something kind of interesting. They're using the reorganization provision of the bankruptcy law to do a nice, slow, orderly liquidation. But there's going to be no yellow freight. There is going to be no yellow freight. So why then would you imagine that knowing this was brewing, we had reported on it last week, many others, that some people bought up the stock last week and the stock went up with this impending disaster unfolding? Doesn't seem to make much sense. But there are some people who are willing to speculate. They're willing to buy the stock when it's really beaten down because people are expecting bankruptcy. And they cross their fingers and they hope that, wow, if the company doesn't go bankrupt or there's enough left over, I can make a lot of money because I bought it so cheaply. 
And then there are the memesters, you know, the people who showed up to save GameStop and to save AMC, and, and they're just having fun. But some of it's just, you know, speculation. You mentioned memesters. Also central to this story are the Teamsters, the truckers union. The company's point of view here is that the union was too tough. That's why the company's going out of business. Is that how you read this, Eric? Yeah, the Teamsters' view is that they had already done some givebacks, that the company got all of this government money and still couldn't make it work. And this company's been in trouble for like 10 years. And I think the Teamsters got to the point where they just said, look, our givebacks won't save this company. It's unsavable. It's cooked. It's done. Government money, they had gotten, what, about $700 million from the government at one point. Yeah, they got $700 million. They actually used about 300 of that, you know, on the Teamsters for their welfare and benefit fund. And then they used about 400 to go out and buy all these tractor trailers, which are now sitting parked somewhere. Mm. Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Thank you for helping us with this. My pleasure, David. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. PM American Public Media. Cloudy and low 80s today. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms that may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Those storms may continue into this evening and it'll fall into the 60s tomorrow, mid 80s and mostly sunny. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.